Welcome to FYI, the four-year innovation podcast. This show offers an intellectual discussion on technologically enabled disruption, because investing in innovation starts with understanding it. To learn more, visit arc-invest.com. Arc Invest is a registered investment advisor focused on investing in disruptive innovation. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by ARC. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by ARC or podcast guests and are not endorsements or recommendations by ARC to buy, sell, or hold any security. Clients of ARC Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome to the Bitcoin Brainstorm, along with my co-host Yasin Almandra, Director of Digital Assets, and Kathy Wood, Founder and CEO and CIO at ARK Invest. I'm your host, Rod Rudy, co-founder of Bitcoin Park, a community-supported campus here in Nashville, Tennessee, focused on grassroots Bitcoin adoption and a home for Bitcoiners to work, learn, collaborate, and build. We are now on episode number seven and jumpstarting the new year with a very, very special episode. First, if this is your first time tuning in, here's our idea. Thanks again to the support from Kathy, Yassine, and the ARC team. We're taking our monthly Bitcoin topic-based approach at Bitcoin Park and applying it to this not-so-new-anymore monthly podcast series we're calling Bitcoin Brainstorm. Each month, we plan to have a different broad topic and invite amazing people from a variety of areas within the Bitcoin community. Our aim is simple, drive conversation around Bitcoin. And after going deep into Bitcoin with the first six episodes, we're now here today to dive deep into this still fairly new launch of the Spot Bitcoin ETF. So we have approximately 60 minutes and we'll be covering a lot as always. So let's do some quick introductions for everyone and then jump right in. Uh, I'll start first with the Senator from the great state of Wyoming, Senator Cynthia Lummis. Well, thank you. It's so great to join you all today. My name is Cynthia Lummis. I am a US Senator from Wyoming and I'm working on digital asset legislation uh, along with Senator Kirsten Gillibrand of New York. It's called the Responsible Financial Innovation Act, and it, it is a pretty comprehensive bill uh, to cover uh, digital assets and their regulatory framework. Fantastic. Welcome, Senator. Really excited for you to participate. Also, perry Ann Boring with the Chamber of Digital Commerce. Hey, Rod, it's great to be here. I'm Perry M. Boring, Chamber of Digital Commerce. We're a trade association that's advocating for the acceptance and use of Bitcoin and digital assets across the country. Uh, our job is very simple. We're here to meet more, more people like Senator Lummis. We need advocates serving in office that can help pave the way for the United States to lead in the development and the use of this technology. And that's exactly what we're doing here on the ground in Washington, DC. Absolutely love it. Thank you so much for joining us. And also joining us is Eric Balchunas with Bloomberg. Great to be here. Um, thank you for uh, having me. I lead a group of uh, 10 people across the world that do ETF research. And I've been um, obsessed, it's probably an understatement, of the Bitcoin ETF race um, and still am. One of the most fascinating stories that I've ever seen in my 20 years covering this. That's awesome. That's awesome. And Alex Thorne with Galaxy Digital. 
Yeah. Hey, Rod, thanks for having me. Alex Thorne. I run research at Galaxy Digital. We're a large financial services company operating in the digital asset space with global markets, asset management, digital infrastructure solutions. And we're very proud to have recently uh, launched a Bitcoin ETF with Invesco. Well done, man. I appreciate you being here. Uh, and Ophelia Snyder, uh, co-founder of 21Shares. Thank you so much. Uh, this is a really interesting group of people. Uh, so 21Shares is the largest pure play issuer of crypto ETFs in the world. We've been doing this for about five years, uh, run 46 products across multiple jurisdictions, uh, and have been doing this for quite some time. And we're ARK's partner in bringing ARKB, our, our Bitcoin ETF, to market. Congratulations, Ophelia. And th again, thanks for joining us. And as always, uh, Kathy Wood, founder, CEO, and CIO at ARK Invest. Welcome back, Kathy. Thank you so much, Rod. I think I know where to jumpstart this conversation. I believe we mentioned on the last episode, but I wanted to bring it back up to you, Kathy. As the first public fund manager to gain exposure in Bitcoin, and I think it was back in 2015, what does this all mean for the evolution of Bitcoin as an asset class? Well, it's pretty momentous. Uh, I'll just give you a little story from back in 2015 to to give you a sense of how far we've come. And Eric will know the journalist. Uh, when we first put GBTC in our funds in 2015, Bitcoin was $250. And we were very new. We had just started the company the year before. And what was the response we got? The response we got from a very well-known journalist in the ETF space whom I will not name here, Eric, and it wasn't Eric, <laughs> uh, was right, right, newbie, you know, what a marketing gimmick this is. And it just had no conceptualization. And I thought, instead of feeling badly about it, I said, this is great. This is great. They have no idea what's going to happen. And um, I must say, here we are now, and uh, as Eric says, says, we now have the same journalists obsessed about a Bitcoin ETF and all the nuances and, uh, and the competition, uh, David's against Goliaths. And it's just such a delightful story. But uh, along the way, as, as we are all out there, we're telling the story of, of Bitcoin, its history and where we think it's going. We do believe this is a public good and that Bitcoin is, uh, represents the, the, the global digital financial highway out there. It is a public good. It's a superhighway. Uh, and it also uh, represents a new asset class. Uh, and, and so we're educating uh, the world about this, all of us. It's a great thing that, the, uh, I mean, while the competition is, it's fun, it's intense and everything, it's important that we get this message out. What is this? A new asset class. And investors, um, you, you may not like it, but you better have an informed uh, dislike because you're going to get questions about this new asset class I think uh, we've come a long way in a very short period of time. It feels like a short period of time, but thank God for Senator Lummis uh, and uh, Senator Gillenbrand and all of those who are trying 
to help us attain regulatory clarity because the U.S. is way behind. And this innovation has been leaving our shores. And it's very distressing as investors in disruptive innovation to see uh, the U.S. not not number one and not on its game because all this is, this is the layer of the internet that developers in early 90s forgot to build in. We never knew that commerce and financial services would take place. So, Senator, thank you. Thank you for, for, uh, for really opening the eyes of so many people whose eyes were just absolutely closed, but your stature and your credibility are adding uh, adding to the movement, and this is a global movement, and is going to be is going to transform the world. And as we always say, when it comes to disruptive innovation, make it a better place. Well, thank you, Kathy. But I have to say, you too have added to that sort of hardening of uh, the fundamentals. Uh, you have I've seen you on uh, networks on Bloomberg, on uh, Fox Business, on uh, CNBC, helping explain to people what the elements of this asset are and why it has the indicia of money that makes it something that is uh, a, a store of value and eventually will become a mean of, means of exchange. So your voice has been critical. Perry M., your voice has been critical. The discussion about this to help normalize it and make people realize that uh, Bitcoin is here to stay. Uh, Bitcoin is durable. It is fungible. It has the elements of money in some ways superior to fiat money. And so now that there's more discussion about that, it just makes this a more durable asset going forward. And then it punctuates it when traditional uh, investment firms led by you, Kathy, are getting in that uh, um, ETF space. Thank you, Senator. I think you bring up a, a great point, Senator, just around broader normalization of Bitcoin. I think Bitcoin for so long has been this, this, this weird magic internet money that no one has really wanted to touch. And I think part of that has been just a lack of clarity around how to perhaps gain exposure, um, how it integrates with the traditional financial system, how it fits within the broader regulatory framework. So there, there are, I guess, lots of threads that we can that we can take here. Uh, maybe we can start with just the how perhaps the implication of a Bitcoin ETF as a bridge between the traditional financial world and innovation and financial innovation. Um, you know, I, I'd love to maybe get Eric's thoughts here on on what this means to have now an ETF wrapper in what was uh, for so long a, 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 an asset that people were extremely highly skeptical of um, as that bridge. And then maybe we can go into what that means for, for just broader regulation. Yeah, sure. So I am through and through an ETF person. Um, when I discovered ETFs in 2006, I was like, they got my heart. I was like, this is going to be like the MP3 was to music. It's going to just completely change investing. And it did. So the Bitcoin and the ETF were all two disruptive things that actually kind of got together. It took 11 years, but it is a really interesting marriage. And I use the, the phrase bridge a lot because 
ETFs have built up 30 years of trust with financial advisors and older investors, Vanguard, BlackRock, ARK, like these are really, Invesco, these are big company brand names, uh, Fidelity's in there. Um, these are trusted. So it's not just that the SEC approved them. It's the companies involved are have built up trust. They tend to be low cost. They tend to be tax efficient. You can get them anywhere in exchange. Uh, they have several advantages. And so they really standardize everything. Everything now you can trade like an equity. Oil futures, disruptive innovation stocks, junk bonds, and now Bitcoin. So standardizing something that was a pain in the butt to have to go get on your own and making it easy as just clicking a button on your brokerage account, I cannot un overstate how massive that is. People love convenience. Check any business. You make something more convenient, uh, you're going to sell stuff, right? So that's a big deal. And so you throw in the SEC, even though they didn't want to approve it, you read Gary's uh, rebuttal. He was not, he was like, I did it, but I, I still don't like it. <laughs> but most people are not going not gonna to read that. They're going to go, well, the SEC approved it. The ETFs are out. They show up uh, on my brokerage account. That's a big deal. So I think advisor, financial advisors manage upwards of $30 trillion. I think some young people who are into Bitcoin probably have their own method of getting it, and that's fine. They get it. But for a lot of I'll call normal people, uh, this is a big deal. Now, how it gets positioned to them, whether it's just digital gold or an alternative currency, if like uh, you know, there's a big meltdown in the world. There's all kinds of reasons and theses for investing in it. But I think mostly the ETF issuers are going to position it as sort of digital gold. But what I, well, the reason I'm into it and the reason I got so involved was the community is really impressive. Uh, they're creative. They're funny. Um, they're uh, very tech savvy. Uh, they've, they, they've been through a couple wars, uh, right? Every time they come back, it's not going away. And now with the ETF, it's here forever. Uh, it's sort of made it forever. And, and we're just like in the first moments of this gigantic collision between many worlds, both culturally, generationally, and the TradFi and DeFi worlds, of course. So I am here for it. I mean, this is like a grab your popcorn kind of moment. And um, ETFs are the premier vehicle, vehicle of the 21st century. So it's going to be interesting to see how this evolves over the next uh, you know couple of years and even decades. One of the things we saw in Europe, for example, so Europe has a tendency, and I mean, Eric, Eric, keep me honest here, but Europe has a tendency to move a little bit faster, especially in the ETF space. They typically bring out product a little earlier um, as people start to bring in no novel asset classes and things like that. And they've been a little, in some respects, and interestingly quicker around crypto regulations with things like Mika. One of the things that we've seen over the last few years, so we've been running products like this for about five years in that market. And one of the fascinating things is that it took years to go from people asking like, hey, are you sure this is legal when we would go and, you know, offer this for the first time? And they treated it like we had either, you know, securitized some sort of illegal drug or we were trying to sell them kryptonite and they came around to it, but it took quite a bit of time. Um, and what's been interesting is in the U.S. market, you're actually seeing that on hyperdrive. Because unlike the European market, where it took years to go through that process, I think in the U.S., and I know there's been a lot of frustration around this, but in the U.S., it's taking weeks or months, which is nothing compared to the years it took to make the same kind of progress in other markets, which I think is a really nice proof point of how far the industry has come and, quite frankly, how needed even just a small amount of validation like this has been. You can really sort of see it in, in the behavior of customers around these products. 
I mean, I, I was at Fidelity for 12 years from right out of college until I joined Galaxy throughout a lot of the early Bitcoin stuff that they did. And I can echo Ophelia's point, maybe using an internal large corp as the microcosm to the, the Europe example, which is even with significant uh, executive backing encouragement from Abby Johnson, the chairperson and CEO of Fidelity. I mean, this was something she loved, right? It was directed down from the top. It wasn't like at most places where somebody sort of smart in the middle pitched it up and got executive buy-in. Even given that, it was very hard to advance uh, different initiatives that we'd have at Fidelity. So, and now it is not, and it hasn't been, It's it's been snowballing for the last few years. You saw it in the, the last sort of bull run in crypto. You saw um, institutions getting involved, like really at size, pension funds, endowments, right? I know uh, many on this on this podcast will have, have interacted with those folks. And then I agree now the the pace is just accelerating. You already we were talking with Eric plenty of times over the last several months about what to expect for, you know, day one, week one month one flows into these products. And I think it's been, frankly, a smash hit, it looks like. I mean, it, compared to other types of launches. The other thing that I've noticed, too, I wanted to add is that, like, we looked at the gold ETFs or, or other ETF launches as comps, but there's really, I, I'm having trouble actually lining up anything against this. One, because you didn't have a giant, whatever it is we call grayscale, in, in like gold, there wasn't this weird closed-end trust in gold and they're, they're also, on the other hand, there were, Eric pointed out that young people have many other ways or uh, people have many other ways to buy Bitcoin other than the ETF, but they're not nearly as convenient in many, for many reasons and in many ways. You didn't have ways to buy investment grade gold really at scale before the ETFs launch. I mean, you could go to a, you could go to Tiffany's and buy gold. You could go to a pawn shop and buy gold. Maybe if you had a sophisticated enough relationship with a brokerage, you could talk to a metals desk or something, but there was basically no access. And yet, even despite that, even despite the fact that people, I mean, we, I have been buying Bitcoin for years. There's still tons of interest, and it and it seems to only be accelerating. And it's no surprise, I mean, given I think what we all believe uh, the importance and promise of Bitcoin is to see that, but it's nonetheless, you know, awe-inspiring. I would just add one thing that I, I think ha happened in the last year that, uh, you know, uh, even the doubters stood up and said, wait a minute, what, what, what was that? We had a regional bank crisis where the KRE falls out of bed, implodes, banks go under, and Bitcoin goes up 40%. There's nothing like price action to get like that to get people's attention. Wait a minute, I, I, don't, have, I, I don't have any of that. What, what was that? Wait, I thought this was a risk-on asset. It's a risk-off asset too? And so, wow. Yeah, Ophelia, maybe circling back to your point and and, uh, and just the rapid pace that we're seeing relative to, let's say, you know, adoption in Europe, I think a part of that is because there was this almost unnecessary pent-up demand around an ETF approval, um, where if you read, for instance, Commissioner Hester Peirce's comments of, you know, this was a long time coming. We should have approved this years ago. And I think the hype around it was built around the sort of delaying the the approval or the inevitable. I wonder now, now that the cat is out of the bag, now that, you know, to Eric, what you said, like Bitcoin is here to stay, do, do, are we going to see, uh, do you think, uh, this is to Perianne and, and the Senator, uh, perhaps some sort of following with regulation, with more clear policy, uh, perhaps some pressure um, from, you know, governmental agencies to say, you know, the cat's out of the bag here, let's actually 
let's actually be a little bit more serious about about how we're thinking about this. Um, th- does this positively impact policy in, in your view? Well, it certainly helps validate Bitcoin as an asset class. I mean, I thought Chairman Gensler's comments on the approval were wildly inappropriate. The SEC is structured to be a disclosure regulator, not a merit regulator. Their role, government's role, is not to pick winners and losers. And for 10 years, the SEC was doing that. And they were acting arbitrary and capricious. And they were, you know, in my opinion, discriminating against Bitcoin funds and preventing Bitcoin from coming to the market. So it was an important action, but we all need to appreciate what it took. It, it took the industry suing their regulator. And that's why we're here. Um, you mentioned gold. Let's not forget that gold was completely outlawed from the 30s to the 70s. There was a full-on prohibition of gold by the federal government. And that's actually the conversation we're having in Washington, D.C. today about Bitcoin. There is a very scary conversation that's happening in U.S. Congress. This has really been led by Senator Elizabeth Warren. She's introduced a bill that would effectively ban Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies in the United States. And she has garnered support by almost 20% of the U.S. Senate on this legislative proposal. And again, thank God for Senator uh, Cynthia Lummis because she's helping countering that conversation. But we are gravely concerned. We are facing an existential threat right now in D.C. And it is an election year. And I think it's absolutely critical that the people of our community participate in the political process and 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 voice their opinion on this technology and our right to exist. Because if we don't, we have everything to lose as a community. So Perry, um, the um, the grayscale lawsuit that then brought about, I believe, a 3-2 decision at the SEC that finally resulted in uh, approval of the ETFs has a shot in the arm for Senator Gillibrand and for me. Because when you have longstanding, well-known, traditional asset manager offering ETFs, it helps validate the whole concept and validity of Bitcoin as uh, an asset and as an asset class. And so now you have people who want to have a diversified asset allocation, things that throw off short-term cash and things that are a long-term store of value and everything in between. They want them all in their portfolios, especially institutional investors that are trying to balance all of these goals for an asset. So whether it's a retirement fund or an endowment fund, whatever model you're using, you want to have exposure to that full spectrum. So Bitcoin brings in that store of value function and even allows um, institutional investment firms to invest in that. So you can expose uh, those same uh, diversified buyers to individual investors and individuals, because as was mentioned earlier, they're so familiar with the ETF format. It finally made it easy and convenient, Eric, for them to 
get into a Bitcoin in that manner. They don't have to have a son-in-law and a daughter like I do helping them do it because people my age, baby boomers are not tech savvy like people all your your ages are. And so we kind of need those more traditional opportunities to, to gain access to these assets, even after we understand that this is something that could augment the diversity of my either personal uh, investment portfolio or a professionally managed investment portfolio. So it's just been really good for embedding Bitcoin into the everyday lexicon of investors. Now, why is that good from a policymaking point? So Perry Ann just explained, we've got this headwind in the Senate that is led by Elizabeth Warren, but we can help counter it uh, by the fact that long-term, well-understood uh, financial firms are using this in an exchange-traded fund format. So maybe it really is okay. Maybe it's not the devil incarnate. And maybe Senator Gillibrand and Lummis are right to want to give the Commodity Futures Trading Commission authority to have regulatory oversight over uh, the custody of these assets. Because obviously these people that are buying these assets in an EFT are not self-custodying. So it, it actually helps us. Okay, what committees have jurisdiction over the Commodity Futures Trading Commission? It's the ag committees. So where are we in the five-year farm bill? We've got until September 30th to pass a five-year farm bill. Who's the chairman of the House Ag Committee? G.T. Thompson. He is actually uh, involved in a positive way of trying to assimilate Bitcoin into the regulatory framework at the CFTC. Uh, and we have uh, folks in the Senate on the Ag Committee. Kirsten Gillibrand is on the Ag Committee. Uh, also working to that end. So I think that even though the headwinds that Perry Ann uh, described are really intense right now, really heavy, um, there are also some uh, light rays uh, that were helped by the fact that the ETFs came along when they did. Senator, I have a, a question. I, I think once... Uh... Larry Fink went from a serious skeptic, and I think that's kind of being nice about it, uh, to all in. Um, he's, he's a Democrat. I noticed, now maybe I'm not listening to the right newscast and all of that, but I noticed uh, that Senator Warren kind of wasn't in the limelight as much, wasn't as being as vocal, but you're, you're suggesting that that's, that's wrong, that in your world, in the legislative world, she and that movement is pretty intense still or increased in intensity because of the ETFs. And, and the second question I have is more election year. For some people, many young people, this is an election year issue and they are single issue voters. So 
I thought that's why she was kind of pulling back saying, oh, I'm hearing from too many young people that I'm I'm out of step. But um, so maybe if you could talk about those two topics. Yeah, and I'd like to hear Perry Ann weigh in on this too. What I see as a Republican uh, counterpart to Senator Gillibrand on our bill is Elizabeth Warren having outsized influence on the chairman of the banking committee, Sherrod Brown. Then when uh, Sam Bankman-Fried had been in to visit and gained the confidence of a lot of members of the Senate, and then he turned out to be uh, a fraudulent player, that really set back the dialogue in the U.S. Senate and gave legs to the arguments of people like Elizabeth Warren. So now you juxtapose where we were after FTX spectacularly failed, and now where we are with firms like Invesco and Fidelity and you know BlackRock uh, articulating uh, a, a very positive view of having Bitcoin as part of a diversified asset allocation. Hopefully what that does is bring people out of complacency or reticence that happened post FTX, and it brings them back into a mode where they're willing to listen to a Larry thing and uh, other investment firms that have ETFs that have been approved uh, and can come around and talk to senators about it. Yeah, Senator, and, and before Perry, and just uh, uh, what, what was very interesting around FTX was um, being able to draw a contrast between Bitcoin and FTX. Uh, uh, FTX, completely uh, centralized, completely opaque, completely fraudulent. Uh, lots of counterparty risk there, right? And then, Kathy, when when they went into bankruptcy receivership or whatever you call it, um, they didn't hold any Bitcoin. Right. They, well, he didn't like Bitcoin. He didn't like Bitcoin, we think, because, of course, he was the master of the universe and he couldn't control it. Well, and I wonder sometimes whether that's part of the bias here against Bitcoin. Uh, it, it is completely decentralized, which means no one in the federal government can control it. And there are a lot of people in government who believe that something that government can't control is bad. And, you know, I see something that government can't control as among the most freeing things that could ever happen to a human being. They cannot be controlled by government. They cannot have their bank accounts manipulated. They cannot invest in uh, a Canadian trucker's cause and have their bank account frozen. It gives them such freedom as a person. But I think that worries people that are used to central control. And, you know, central banks, the Fed, um, is sort of completely out of 
the conversation uh, on Bitcoin because they have no control over it. I think that really worries them. So that's very much part of it too. Can you get comfortable with something you cannot control? I do think that's, that's a motivating factor of Senator Warren's efforts is her her vision to roll out a central bank digital currency in the uh, in the United States and and having Bitcoin not being commensurate uh, with that vision. Uh, my perspective is that we should have options, and Bitcoin is an option. And consumers, um, particularly in you know in the United States, people should have an option of, of what they want to use. Uh, and an ETF is another option as well. It gives people exposure uh, to this asset class in a new way. Uh, Kathy, your question was, have things uh, heated up with uh, these efforts, these anti-Bitcoin, anti-cryptocurrency efforts in the Senate since the approval of spot Bitcoin ETF applications? I'm here in DC right now, and I was on the Senate all day today. I met with one uh, senator who told me that Senator Warren has been, uh, you know, essentially like tra trying to track her down. Uh, she's really cornering other members and trying to uh, twist their arm into sponsoring this this crypto ban bill. Uh, I uh, I met with another office who said Senator Warren. They were kind of trying to like dodge Senator Warren. They don't. They're not really interested in the bill. Not really interested in this. But she's like very insistent on this effort, and that she tracked down the senator's private phone number, cell phone number, called her on her phone, and was like, "Hey, are you going to sponsor my bill?" And it's like, "What is going on?" Uh, so she. You know, from my conversations with other offices, other members of the Senate, no. We're also hearing that there are efforts to introduce a companion bill in the House, which would be devastating. If you can get both chambers to align on this, I mean, I, I, I'm not being, I, I'm not trying to be controversial or I'm not trying to kind of make a big deal out of something that's not a big deal. This is a big deal. This is a bipartisan effort. And if they're able to get the political alignment to be able to pass something like this, it really would devastate our industry. And Kathy, I, I do commend you know your comment on education. It comes down to education. I've personally met with every single sponsor of that bill. Most of them were very surprised to learn that the legislation would actually push the entire industry offshore. Uh, most of them signed on thinking, okay, there's an illicit finance issue and we want to fix it. And this is a, a way to in increase compliance on cryptocurrency companies. I think a lot of them were uh, kind of misinformed. Uh, and that's why, you know, that's why we're here. That's why we're on the ground every day, meeting with offices, educating them on the technology, legislative proposals, how that would impact uh, the industry. And this is a critical time. We have really amazing things happening in, in the private sector, but if we don't have alignment with public policymakers, it could really impact the future trajectory of our of our community. And again, it's about options. The most hopeful thing, thing you just said, Perry Ann, is she's having to chase them to, into corners and find their private numbers. And that apparently is unusual. See, I'm not a part of that world. 
that's good news. I think that she's having such trouble, but but I'm not there. So yeah, please keep up your good work uh, and, and keep us focused on this. Could I offer some other good news just also in, in a contrast here? Because, you know, uh, Senators Lummis and Gillibrand introduced their legislation after some spectacular blowups had occurred. It's a very positive. It would actually help protect consumers. It looks to both foster innovation while helping stop the types of things we saw happen. Senator Warren's bill was introduced in November 22, right after FTX. It would effectively ban it. That's the reaction of that part of the thing. On the other hand, after FTX, Senators Hickenlooper and Tillis introduced a proof of reserves bill that would actually do a lot more to protect people from what happened at FTX, right? So you have a very clear, like, a coalition of both willing and intelligent people, in, particularly in the Senate, in the Senate Banking and Agricultural Committees that are trying to advance things that would that would, by the way, they're, they're not handouts to industry. They would help protect consumers. They would create regulatory clarity. They would bring this innovation inside the remit of the U.S. government and its regulators in a way that we can both foster and protect. And so I, I see a very disingenuous effort by the clear opponents of crypto in the U.S. Congress, where I see a pretty hard, I mean, uh, uh, Representative McHenry in the House Financial Services Committee, I mean, m many others that are, the advocates seem to be a lot more reasonable and thoughtful than, whereas you hear a lot of hysteria out of the opponents. Um, and again, like the Digital Asset Anti-Money Laundering Act that Senator Warren has introduced and has been now pushing for a year, it it is a non-thoughtful, and she speaks about it in obfuscating terms as well, right? She says that it's to, that that crypto should do the same things as banks, but she doesn't. The bill doesn't address anything about crypto companies at all. It goes directly at like technology protocols and software developers, right? Whereas the again, the advocates are not trying to push bills that give you know like a free pass to the Bitcoin industry at all, right? They're much more thoughtful. Um, and Senator Lummis has been a key part in that as well as others. So I, I think that's very positive while you have this, you know, the hysteria from Senator Warren and some of her allies, you have a much more deliberate and thoughtful pro-innovation and pro-consumer safety wing that is now sort of rising up in Congress, which I love to see. Well, one thing, I mean, and Senator Lummis mentioned this, th there's an access issue to some extent and access and education go hand in hand, right? So if it's very difficult for a group of people to feel like they can participate in the ecosystem and in our community, that makes it much harder, much less friendly, quite bluntly, in terms of learning how to be part of this community and then actually wanting to participate. I think, you know, crypto sometimes has, as an industry, a tendency to like to hide behind our colloquialisms and our jargon and, and make it very much about well, you're either part of the community or you're not. And if you're not, you're on the wrong side of an argument, as opposed to necessarily opening that up and being welcoming to it. And there are two examples that come to mind from in two completely different circumstances. I recently onboarded someone on one of my teams to, to the company. We're trying to teach them how to use wallets. And I watched someone who was surrounded by three people who collectively had about 20 years of collective experience dealing with various bits and pieces of the crypto industry. Um, including myself, we, we do this for a living. And you could visibly see how uncomfortable that was, the, those transactions, how to do this, the idea that you can lose your money so easily. It, it wasn't a comfortable experience. Um, and then on the other end of the spectrum, about in 2013, my mom came to me and was the first person to ever talk to me about Bitcoin. I was actually brought into the crypto ecosystem by my mom, not the other way around. Let's go, uh, Ophelia's mom. That's great. Honestly, the coolest woman I know. And she's she's extraordinary. She came to me and she's like, you know, 
Merck spends too much money hedging currencies and globalization is a real force in the economic world. We've had rates at zero for a long time. It's going to have unintended impacts on monetary policy. We likely need something here to help. And this is a clear problem. Have you heard of a thing called Bitcoin? November 2013. Fascinating, right? So how did she learn about Bitcoin, Ophelia? So my mom read about Bitcoin because at the time she was uh, reading about new types of financial infrastructure and and VC investing and, and how to think about those things. And she's just also someone who who loves history and loves economics and, you know, was discussing gold and, and the gold window and, and some of the things that have happened within um, financial infrastructure. And so it's really just an understanding of global economics and payments rails. So what is really the role of SWIFT? How dependent are we on visa networks? What does this mean in terms of a world where we've benefited tremendously over the last couple of decades, actually, from what essentially amounts to a Pax Americana, right? A a form of a globalized peace. Um, And we've had a very long stretch of that, essentially, since the end of the Cold War with with little flare-ups here and there. But but you really did have this this era of uh, increased globalization, increased international cooperation, more open borders, the development of things like the Euro bloc, like a movement towards a globalized world. But that's not a historically consistent thing. Those periods come and go and dust-ups around more intense periods of uh, geopolitical either jockeying or questioning of sort of what that status quo looks like is pretty normal on a historical time period. And so if you study history and you love history, which actually both me and my mom do, it's very obvious that these periods, they, they come and go and they have a cadence. And so I think that's actually how she got into it. Although I I'd, I'd need to actually ask her how she came to it um, because she just started talking to me about it one day and I was, I was quite surprised. But the craziest thing is she actually didn't feel like she could participate, which is the most interesting piece because for her, self-custody, trading of a bearer asset on a platform she's never heard of, which has virtually no transparency, not anything bad against the companies that were operating at the time. A bunch of them have turned out to be great, but there's just no ability to know that. And if you're used to existing in a world where you have that transparency, or at least you feel like you do in the context of you know the way banking systems work and you have trusted advisors and, and you operate inside of that system, it's really not welcoming to then have to say, hey, wait a second, you're going to do this. And I think that actually translates from a policy perspective. Because part of the issue is if you can't welcome people, it doesn't have a use case for them. It's not real in their world in any material way. There's no reason to learn anything about this. It exists completely abstracted from day-to-day life. I think central bank digital currencies, to some extent, are more accessible because it's sort of like saying, you know, nobody really perceives much of a difference between a dollar bill, a dollar on a gift card, or a dollar in your bank account. And it feels like an extension of that as opposed to a new system that actually feels like a departure. And that's really interesting because I think without that access and without welcoming people into the community, making that leap is different. A CBDC is not new. It's just a new way of producing dollars, which you may not, you may like, may have other features. I'm not a huge fan of them because I genuinely don't see how it changes anything. It's not different than my Visa card. And I think that's an interesting dynamic. And I think it's translating to policy. Yeah. As a community, I think we can definitely do better in our messaging, you know, why do we need Bitcoin? And I think where we are today, particularly with my generation, millennials, so many people feel like the American dream is just not 
it's not attainable anymore. So many people are putting off getting married, having a family. They are still paying off student loan debts. Uh, they don't think buying a house is possible. It's completely outside of their ability today. They're struggling uh, financially month to month, living paycheck to paycheck, having just to buy groceries. People are, you know, my friends, my age are, they're not going on vacations anymore because they just can't afford it. And you have to sit back and think, well, what happened? You know, wh wh why is this happening? And it's, you know, inflation is something that we all feel. And Bitcoin is a tool. And why would we want to take that tool off the table today when people actually need it? So I'd love to ask Eric, Eric, as you're uh, hearing about people, uh, the, the funds flowing into Bitcoin, um, do you think the education around the launch of the ETFs really got people over the hump? Or do you think they had been waiting saying, I'm not going to go through all of that friction-filled process. I'm going to wait for an ETF. What, why do you think the flows have been so strong so early? One thing underrated in the Bitcoin approval was the competition factor. There's never been a time in ETF history where 11 ETFs launched on the same day that did the same thing. There's never been two, let alone 11. So if you're an issuer and you're ARC, you look to your right, it's BlackRock. You look to your left, it's Fidelity. Well, you're going you're gonna to hustle. And so I think there were, the hustle factor was strong. And so a lot of people lined up clients. They were like, we don't want to be last. We want to look like we're successful because marketing, I mean, volume and assets are the greatest marketing for an ETF. So if you can get something going, because advisors don't want to go someplace, like they don't want to go to um, an ETF that has nothing. They want to look like a party's going on and there's people there. Okay, it must be safe. I'll go. So volume is crucial. And they all of them pretty much minus one or two have really good volume assets that's all very healthy already. And I think that they have double what they would have had if there was only one or two launching. The competition created so much hustle. The other thing I think is there was probably some um, older investors amongst the advisors who were waiting for something like this. They were waiting for the SEC's, you know, approval, direct or indirect. And they were waiting for something that felt comfortable to them. Because we had Doug Bonaparte on our podcast last week. He's a classic, he's like a maybe a 38-year-old advisor. His younger clients already got Bitcoin, like how they wanted it. The older ones, though, were the ones he's fielding calls on now. And he's working with them and educating them. And I asked him, like, whether he was into the whole, like, like again, how do you position this? Like, is this a currency? that people are going to use after society collapses? Or is it like digital gold? And because if you go on crypto Twitter, there's definitely some that have the former theory. Like this is a hedge against everything going uh, to hell. And I get that. I call it the Mad Max hedge, you know, just in case our, you know, we go into this post-apocalyptic look and people, whoever has Bitcoin is actually able to buy and sell stuff. Um, Nobody's going to talk about that. He talks more about digital gold and the idea, again, that this is an industry that's very smart. Um, but I think uh, the people who this will appeal to down the road are going to just be, people are just too busy. You know, everybody has brought up here that it's just a painful task to go find, uh, even Coinbase. I mean, that's expensive too. So whether it's expensive or just hard to do, I think the ETFs will uh, draw from all the people who uh, found it too costly or 
again, the, the wallet thing, you know, remembering 12 words for the rest of your life. You know, I tell, I try to tell the crypto people, they're like, that's not a big deal. I'm like, I can't remember my Amazon password. Uh, I, I literally have to like, you know, go and get a new one. If I, if, if I go to a device that doesn't have it, I don't remember it. So this ETF is awesome. You outsource all of that, yet you get to participate. So in terms of regulation, I think the ETF will help popularize and get more people with a vested interest who then will see an article on it and go, oh, yeah, actually own some. I should read this. So I think it's probably the ETF is going to do a lot of introducing of this, especially to people uh, you know, older than 35. You know, I'm Gen X and I was I would never do a wallet. I'm just I can't be bothered. And I'm I can't say I'm that into it. I'm more of an ETF evangelist than I am a Bitcoin evangelist, but I would totally be willing to put some be an ETF in my portfolio. So um I think that's who's gonna really um get into it. And I also think that the advisors of the world, having people like you, Kathy, and Larry Fink and others come out and sort of like say this is this has value is huge. It gives them a lot of cover, right, to be able to talk to clients about it. So again, this is the first couple steps of a marathon. Um, and some of the crypto people are a little one quick thing on what Perianne said about like, you know, this is I do tell the crypto people, look, be careful going all in on this. Stocks and bonds are really great. Stocks have cash flow, dividends, people wake up every day and create value at co corporations. That is passed on to you in earnings growth and cash flow. You literally, the money works for you. Same with bonds. There's a coupon. I just think, so I'm in this like sort of diplomatic position here where I'm trying to sort of explain that 60-40 portfolios are actually really cool to the crypto people. And then I'm telling the 60-40 older people, this is really much more interesting than you think. Um, and I just, I feel like we're at the beginning of maybe them understanding each other a little bit, but. To, to Perry's point, I would not go all in on Bitcoin for my retirement or with my investments. I really would still add a lot of 60-40 in there uh, because you want that money working for you and compounding over time. So that's where there, I will say there is probably a disconnect. Uh, an older person will use this as a little hot sauce and otherwise dull 60-40. A younger person might use it in a bigger sense, what um, Perry is talking about in terms of this is a really important investment for me. I feel like the money supply and all that stuff is, is weaker, but I would be skeptical of, of anyone. If someone came to me in my personal life and said, I'm, I'm actually selling everything and just buying Bitcoin, I'd be like, I, you know, I don't give advice, but I'd be careful. And I would explain the value of stocks and bonds. But I've wondered with you, because we've been talking about Bitcoin since ARK put it in, uh, it's active equity funds. And there was so much skepticism early on. But I do sense, um, I do sense, and I'd love to know from you. You have grown much more interested in it. I think you were kind of holding back and just, you know, just what what is this? But I think what you just said about all eleven going, all educating, all hustling, you know, has has increased your confidence from what I'm seeing. Yes, I would say that again. My main cheerleading of the Bitcoin ETF was that I know ETFs give people the best possible deal. And the other things on the market were not ideal. GBTC was a flawed closed-end fund. Uh, Coinbase was really expensive, as were the other exchanges. And then you got the FTX, where they could literally just run away with your money. So an ETF, I thought, would be a safe, cheap, 
easy access point, and that's what I was more bullish on. That said, honestly, it's the people that has convinced me the most, and the memes. Um, they're just fun. They're you know going from like Bloomberg and like then going into crypto Twitter. It's it's fun. They're passionate. They're smart. They they you know it, there's something about it. It feels like a scene. Like when I was in uh, college, you'd go and there'd be a scene with certain bands. And it was fun, you know, and you got into it. And so that to me has been one of the bigger things because at the end of the day, I still don't totally understand it completely, nor do I think it will be like the, you know, predominant currency or anything, but it's the people that has me um, so inspired. So it'd be like me looking at a company that I understand the product they make, but I've met the people who work there and I'm like, I just, I, I kind of dig them. And that's sort of where I am on this, but more so. I just feel like now people have uh, the investors have the best possible entry point to this thing via the ETFs and the competition they bring. What you're describing is normalization, right? It's the idea that you can be both. And there, there will be people who are all in on this industry, who are the developers, who are you know, potentially holding a significant proportion or even a majority of their assets in, the, in, in this industry. Um, it, it's a lot more similar to you know, what you might have seen with uh, broader tech over the last... 20 years where people did have either a very significant or virtually all of their net worth tied up in, you know, a single sector or highly concentrated from that perspective. But then you also have people who added, you know, uh, some very plain vanilla tech stocks as, you know, a kicker on their 60, 40 portfolios. And now you maybe you see people who are, that's considered pretty plain vanilla. And I think that's part of that normalization trajectory is that you still want the memes. You still want that community to be exactly the way it is because those are the people who are bringing it forward and developing it and bringing it to the next level. But at the same time, for most people, you're probably looking at, I mean, the research is fairly consistent that that you know mid single digits percent from a portfolio allocation perspective is where most people are going to get the majority of those benefits. That may be on the high side for some people, but depending on what their personal risk tolerance is, like putting aside, you know, actually portfolio construction theory. But that's where we think I think a lot of the world is going to shake out medium term. That's that trend is towards normalization. I think that's ultimately a good thing. So you actually want both. Just real quick, and I because I love this, 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 Eric, you mentioned this even earlier, but you're talking so much about this, the culture clash, right? And going and meeting the community versus understanding it. And and I just want to add to this, which I know, I think we all know quite a lot about, but there, there's also the people that use the Bitcoin network. I mean, the obvious, the obvious trade-off with the ETF is that you can't send me Bitcoin, Eric, from the ARCB or the BTCO or the IBIT vehicle, right? All you can do is get exposure to the price of Bitcoin. But there are people all around the world that use Bitcoin regularly for a variety of co commercial or humanitarian reasons. I was at a great event at Bitcoin Park in Nashville in September, I think maybe it was, I think it was September, um, that was sponsored by the Human Rights Foundation, which teaches and trains advocates uh, and political uh, prisoners and refugees and um, from all around the world on how to use tools like Bitcoin, not just Bitcoin, but like Bitcoin and Bitcoin to conduct their otherwise legal operations that may not be allowed right under their regime. We saw this done all over the world. So people are, th that's, and of course you see it in Latin America. You see, you saw it in Canada during those protests last year when uh, banking, uh, bank accounts were shut down again, totally lawful uh, financial activity. So 
that we know that I know that that and it, and that is increasing. What's so sh shocking and interesting is that a tool that is so powerful from a, a human rights standpoint also has these this incredible investment narrative and growth narrative, which, of course, it does have um, and that you have this sort of this these two stories together, which are both. I, I'm frankly quite different and also complementary. It's it feels I'm, I'm sort of getting that same vibe on this clash, Eric. Yeah, I would like to address a little bit of an elephant in the room that uh, maybe those of us who work in the market day to day, and I know that Senator Lummis and and Perry Ann will have uh, something to say about this. But you know, when Chairman Jay Powell speaks, he moves markets. I mean, he says one word in a different tone, and the markets, they start up and then later on, and this happened today. And then later on in the conversation, he says something, oh, no, 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 markets, <laughs> markets really capitulate. And it's just like one person or that group of people should not be this powerful, just shouldn't. There's something really wrong with that. Yeah, you are spot on, Kathy. I have a friend, we've talked about him. His name is Parker Lewis. He recently wrote a book called Gradually Yet Suddenly. And among the things that Parker did is he went back and looked at uh, the minutes of Fed meetings uh, that are non-disclosed. You can't look at them for a period of years. And then they're released for public consumption. So Parker went back and read them and then tried to figure out how accurate they were when they were making decisions. Once those decisions played out, did they get it right? And I think he found out that it was sort of a 50-50 proposition. Sometimes they got it right and sometimes they didn't, didn't get it right. Which is to say, Kathy, you and I could sit down and make those decisions and half the time we'd be right and half the time we'd be wrong. So why should any small group of people be in a position to make those decisions and have that ability to move markets and, and whip around economies. Oh, totally. Whole economies. So I, I think that helps make your argument. I, I really do want, you know, to put in a plug for gradually yet suddenly, if you haven't read it. He, yeah. Parker was on our, on our last month's Bitcoin brainstorm and oh, we made good. Oh, good. He's super impressive. For sure. I mean, I think it goes, Senator, your, your comments go back to what, what you said around how liberating it is to eliminate that human decision maker. And that's exactly what this suggests, is that you want to eliminate a human because humans are inherently flawed or biased in their decision making. And something like Bitcoin offers exactly that. You know, it's there, there's like this, there's this common thread across everything that every one of you is saying, and I think it, go, it does go back to education. I think the, the idea that, that Bitcoin is just, it converges on so many ideas. The difficulty is like, where do you start, right? Is it Bitcoin as a money? Is it Bitcoin as a technology? Is it Bitcoin as a new asset class? Uh, and I think part of that is like being able to, you know, have conversations like these that almost bridges 
the the many definitions of Bitcoin, right? The 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 conversation that we were having around Senator Warren, for example, her claims of wanting to ban Bitcoin is a fundamental misunderstanding of Bitcoin as a te technology. It's like you don't you can't ban Bitcoin. You can ban yourself from using it, but Bitcoin is a inherently decentralized software that will work with or without your support. So I, I think that something as simple as just the ability to raise that as a fact um, need, need, we need to, people need to kind of hear that. Um, on the flip side, and, I, and I'd love to open this up, is that does does all of this actually end up even mattering? Right, the 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 pushback and uh, that that Elizabeth Warren has is like, does an ETF now that the cat is really out of the bag, and now that you have so many stakeholders that have a, a vested interest? That's the beauty of of Bitcoin is that. Once you understand Bitcoin, you buy Bitcoin. Then once you buy Bitcoin, you tell all your friends to buy Bitcoin. And then once all your friends buy Bitcoin, it's this like never-ending uh, virtuous cycle. With something like an ETF, I think to Eric's point, is that now you actually have a wrapper that people are comfortable with. And, and this is how they get their foot, foot in the door. Um, because of how ubiquitous of a wrapper an ETF is, my, my take is that there's, there's almost too much momentum and inertia behind this to reverse course. Uh, and so and so I think it's really only a matter of, of time before before there is almost that submission or surrender to this the inevitable. Perry, what are your what are your thoughts on, on that? Because I, I I am sensitive to your concern. I'm also kind of like, you know, Bitcoin doesn't doesn't really care. Uh, did, well, what do you say to that? No, Bitcoin doesn't care at all. It's the United States that's going to, to lose. To suffer. So right. if you know Congress, you know, God forbid, pass legislation that would make it illegal to mine Bitcoin in the United States, you know, about forty-two percent of Bitcoin is mined in the U.S. today. Do we really want the function of securing the network to be pushed offshore? No. But is the infrastructure already so embedded that it becomes? irreversible. I'm talking about ETF mining infrastructure. Like what would it take now to ban ownership of Bitcoin if there is now a Bitcoin ETF that the BlackRocks, the arcs of the world are fully, you know, supportive of and and you go to you see what happens in the case of going to court, you're going to lose every single time. Is that even feasible? I think you're right. I mean, I, I think the faster we can get to mainstream adoption, the faster we'll be protected as a community from from politics. But I mean, don't forget, in 1933, gold was banned. Everyone had to surrender their gold to the Federal Reserve. I mean, it's inconceivable to, to think about that, but that really wasn't uh, that, that long ago. I did want to comment on the the, the question, you know, the, the investor conversation, you know, and I'm not necessarily advocating to, you know, sell your mortgage and, you know, you know, dump your retirement account and, and go buy Bitcoin as tempting as that may seem. Um, but Bitcoin is the best performing asset in the world. And it has been the past 11 out of 15 years. Uh, so anyone who did get in the industry early, you know, if they if they hodled, they've uh, you know they've seen real returns. Uh, more importantly, is has anyone really looked at how Bitcoin ETFs are performing or how they're projected to perform in a traditional portfolio? If you take a traditional 60/40 uh, portfolio and you take two percent of that and you 
you put it in Bitcoin or a Bitcoin ETF, the Sharpe ratio increases. So I think you know beyond just uh, you know discussing the uh, the culture of our community, which is you know fascinating and awesome, there is a, a you know a very straightforward conversation we can have about the numbers. How does it perform? Um, and because this is a, a non-correlated asset. Uh, it performs very well in a traditional portfolio, and I think it's it, it's ideal uh, because it increases the sharp ratio and increases return without increasing volatility or risk uh, substantially. Uh, and the more you know, this uh, ETFs become uh, uh, you know popularized around the investment community as we have investment advisors starting to learn about these products, analyzing how they perform in their uh, customers' uh, portfolios and really seeing how the best performing asset in the world is going to perform in traditional portfolios, I think that ultimately is going to be an important part of adoption. And that, you know, again, comes back uh, to education. Yeah, and Yasin and his team uh, are working on an update to paper we wrote in 2020 uh, exactly on what you just said, uh, Perry ann So totally agree on that. Yeah, we, we also published one like Four months ago, and and Bitwise at Fidelity. Many people have published. It, it's it, to be clear, we all keep finding the same thing, which is that almost almost any almost across any time frame. I mean, yeah. Um, I did want to just comment on Yassine's question too about whether Bitcoin, you know, Bitcoin doesn't care. I think obviously it's a resilient network. There's in in a totally group period, and you you you'd end up banning yourself from the network more than banning Bitcoin. But if, if you care about Bitcoin in America, I really wouldn't. I hear this a lot from Bitcoin or friends of mine almost a complacency because of how resilient and strong the network is in the face of these legislative attacks. And I do want to encourage people to really believe and realize that you have to play the game that is happening on the field. You can't sort of throw your hands up or and say Bitcoin doesn't care or right history is written by those who show up and i see this time and time again with legislation as well right you know legislating is the order of the compromise like we've we've got to sort of kick the ball from where it lies and 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 that's again just as i mentioned before senators lummis and Gillibrand and hickenlooper and tillis and um and many others um have done i think great jobs with sensible stuff and i and i really hope people will get involved again damel too i'm a massive opponent of elizabeth warren's bill i've I, I also was accused of raising the alarm about it because what does Bitcoin care about this thing? But um, I think it's terrible. It'd be terrible for America. But yes, Bitcoin would continue. Sure. It would. To clarify, it's we, we, we care. Bitcoin doesn't care. I think the, the people still, the people care and they should care. Coinbase, Coinbase, is, Coinbase cares. It is leading this movement in, in terms of, you know, funding uh, legislation or helping fund those who will advocate for uh, for Bitcoin. If the U.S. banned Bitcoin and Bitcoin doesn't care, what does that do, though, to the Jack Mallory's of the world that are trying to develop uh, the Lightning Network so it can be used as a very effective payment system? What about, I, and I don't know what you all call this, it's something like level two where you might have these federations where people can go on an, uh, a different level and have a sort of a community where they transact. Um, it, would banning Bitcoin in the U.S. affect the development of those different levels? 
Potentially, yes, I would say. I mean, and, and it's not just you're talking about layer two networks. There's really interesting stuff on Bitcoin called Fediments, which are very new, but are sort of those uh, like community uh, e-cash Bitcoin servers. There's plenty of other things, too. And if I just say, you know, the, the cryptocurrency industry broadly raised about $80 billion in venture funding over the last five or seven years. And, and something like you know, 60% or 75% of that went to US based companies. So from a an entrepreneurship and a startup standpoint, I don't know why you would why, why would Jack build strike in the US if it's illegal for him to operate Bitcoin in the US, right? You're gonna you're gonna push that talent that technology talent offshore. Um, even just last quarter, it was something like 45% of all deals were US based headquarter companies with the next highest of the country was like 12%, right? So it's the vast plurality, if not majority of where the innovation is happening. So if you just care about jobs and development, you should be supportive of something that clearly, you know, millions of people in the US like. So I, I totally agree. It would affect that stuff, Senator. Absolutely. And they're moving to the great state of Wyoming, as well as Tennessee and setting up shop to develop. And it's been amazing to see. And maybe I could bring this whole conversation full circle and it'd be a good place to wrap up because I think Eric actually said it at the beginning, how fascinating this uh, ETF was in terms of the Bitcoin ETF, like worlds colliding, policymakers, investors, developers, memers, all coming together and just pushing this. Now we have a new product. Some people don't care, like they want to just have their, you know, Bitcoin uh, self-custody and that's great. Now, you know, my mom now knows that it's a viable asset that, you know, ARK and others, she can go into her brokerage account and buy. And so that's great. And, uh, and maybe it's to, to Eric and kind of where do we go from here? Maybe from a flows perspective, from your point of view, and then I'd love everyone else's point of view. Like we have the spot ETF now approved. We got some regulatory clarity. We need more. But where do we go from from here? You know, look, I see this as being a category that's on par with gold ETFs. They currently have $100 billion. Um, that's about 1.5% of all ETF assets. If Bitcoin ETFs can get anywhere near that in three three to four years, I'd say that would be uh, better than most predicted. Um, right now, if you count GBTC together, what are they, like $25 billion? And I think that as much as GBTC bleeds, the other ones will make up for it. So we'll say we'll stay around 25, 27, 28 for like a couple of weeks. But once GBTC stops, you know, dumping and the uh, people stop leaving, I think the new ones continue to take in some good, some good um, flows. Again, the competition factor, I think, is going to help a lot. So I, I really think you can see this getting to that $100 billion mark within three or four years. Um, now, does it go beyond that? Again, the crypto people are like, well, yeah, because people are going to get so into it, they're going to sell their 60-40 and go. I honestly think, again, this would be a two, 1% to $2% allocation for most people. And that, that $100 billion makes it about, again, 1% to 2% of ETF assets. That's where you sort of end up there. And then do we go to an Ether ETF? Probably. And I think it just stops after that for a, a long time in terms of like actual cryptocurrencies. Um, but what we also will see is... Uh, the spaghetti cannon, which is the term Ben Johnson has for when an ETF is a hit, the industry throws everything at the wall. So we're going to have leveraged Bitcoin. We're going to have inverse Bitcoin. We're going to have covered call Bitcoin. We're going to go long Bitcoin, short gold. Long Bitcoin, long Tesla, short gold. Uh, we're going to have all kinds of... <laughs> 
<laughs> That'll be the Kathy Wood uh, special. Uh, so yeah, we're gonna have all kinds of stuff that they're gonna try to you know get out there. Uh, there's already one that's carbon credits plus Bitcoin. So um, one will be like S and P 500 plus a little Bitcoin. So these this ecosystem's gonna build, and then they're gonna have options on the ETF. So you're gonna be put and call options that will attract the institutional investors and the traders. So this is how an ETF category is birthed. But the big thing you need is volume, and we've already got it. So once you get volume, you can track the uh, sort of ones that want to get into the into the action, the options market, and then you're looking at a very vibrant category. So that's where I would see it all going um, in three or four years. Maybe we have 40 products, including all those other things, and we've got $100 billion, something like that. I don't know, uh, Perry Ann or Senator Lummis, where do you think from a regulatory standpoint we go from here? Perry Ann, do you care if I start? Because I've got to go vote. Um, I think we could get stablecoin legislation this year. Next, I think we could maybe get something on CFTC out of the farm bill. The hardest part to get is going to be the SEC part for non-commodity assets. uh, And that's going to be a heavier lift. And we will not get that until uh, we have a uh members elected that are more friendly uh to digital assets and that's where Perry Ann comes in. So I'll turn that over to her now and thank you all since I have to go vote for allowing me to participate in this. Oh thank you so much for joining uh, us. Senator. Oh it was a pleasure and a treat. Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. Yes, Perry Ann. Yeah, as as Senator Lummis noted, in terms of legislation getting uh passed into law uh, sta- uh, the stablecoin bill seems was at the very top of the prioritization uh, list, which would absolutely be very helpful uh, for the industry. Uh, I think we're going to see a lot more conversation about uh, Elizabeth Warren and her crusade uh, against the industry. I do think you're going to see a lot of people in the community start to kind of wake up. And that's a big part of what I'm focused on is just helping the community understand like what is the conversation we're having in Washington, why it's so important to participate in the political process. And, you know, we don't want to just kill this bill this year. We want to make sure it never resurrects again um, in a future Congress. So I think this is going to end up being a major topic of conversation uh, in terms of policy and and, and regulation uh, here in Washington. But in the long run, I'm very optimistic. You know, I do think the spot Bitcoin ETF uh, does help mainstream the technology. And I think more and more people are starting to understand uh, what this technology can do for them. And again, we're living in really unique times from a geopolitical perspective, very high inflation. Everyone feels it. I think the more we can get the word out about how this technology can be a tool for real people across the world, uh, the, the better we're going to do as a community to overcome our political challenges today. Perry, can I just, and I just, uh, sorry, I know we're winding up here. Just one question. When the SEC and the CFTC were duking it out uh, when it came to derivatives, they duked it out for a long time and it ended up going to the Supreme Court. Uh, and and that's when we got regulatory clarity. Do you think this is going to have to go to the Supreme Court, uh, given given what you're seeing between the SEC and the CFTC? 
It really does not need to. What we need and where we are in the policymaking process today is Congress needs to pass a market structure bill that clarifies the role of all the different agencies. You mentioned SEC and CFTC, and there's a lot of questions. You know, where is the line drawn? Where What cryptocurrencies are going to be regulated over here versus over there? But there's other agencies. There's the tax authority. How do you tax? Uh, there's all the AML sanctions, illicit finance rules. So that's um, FinCEN and OFAC. Uh, the Commerce Department, uh, is directed to oversee U.S. competitiveness. There's efforts within from a defense perspective. So the entire you know defense and national security space. There's a lot of different agencies across the federal government that all have a role in the future of Bitcoin and the blockchain ecosystem. And Congress needs to pass a bill that clarifies that. That is what Senator Lummis and Gillibrand are working on. That's their bill. If we can get that passed into law or a market structure bill passed into law, that would address a a lot of the issues we have today, it doesn't need to go through the Supreme Court. It will take an act of Congress. Uh, I used to work in Congress. It's very difficult to get an act of Congress done. Uh, but that that ultimately uh, would set the United States up to be a welcoming jurisdiction to digital asset businesses. Yeah, great answer. Ophelia? Uh, I think if you sum it up in one word, it's normalization. I, I really mean that. I think it comes in a bunch of different sauces, right? It's, you know, it's what Perry Ann's talking about. It's creating, it's figuring out how to take this thing and make it fit within the existing infrastructure. Part of that is legislation and clarifying who's in charge of what. Part of that is access points. So ETFs, very important. Coinbase, very important. DEXs, very important. You need to actually create access points that are appropriate to people and appropriate to their use case. And you need to create as many of them as possible, because at the end of the day, what you're looking for is mainstream. What you're looking for is welcoming as many people into this community as possible, because at the end of the day, if everyone's not on this system, it's not going to work. If you want to actually build a new form of finance and a new way of transacting and a new type of reserve currency, you actually need a couple billion people participating, which means that providing that access and providing a welcoming and good feeling way of doing that is critical. And it's going to cover off essentially every facet of financial infrastructure and a good deal of different behavioral patterns. The ETF is really important for that. And that's exciting, especially for institutions or intermediated money, but it's only one avenue. And as we look towards building out a bigger community in, in digital assets, and we look at welcoming more people into that community, we should be doing more of this, not less. Education, education. Alex, how about yourself? I feel like it's the year of clash. You've got the the Bitcoin uh, movement is going to smash like a wave on Wall Street. You're going to see, we were talking about Jay Powell and, and his commentary in Fed speak and how, how impactful it can be on markets, how effectively arbitrary Fed policy can be. Well, you're, the debate today was about whether or not the Fed is going to cut in March or maybe later, well, we know exactly what will happen to Bitcoin's monetary policy in April, right? So, and we're likely, by the way, similar to in 2020, to see central bank monetary policy artificially easing at the same time as Bitcoin monetary policy is automatically tightening. So that clash, that stark contrast will show itself again. Um, so I think these, the, the contrast, the, I don't want to say culture clash, it's culture clash, it's monetary policy clash, it's market access vehicle clash. 
Um, and it's generational. So I think it's going to be a really interesting year of people dealing with this, the smashing together of these worlds. Yeah. Less than 90 days to the halving. And um, I know, Kathy, you've already done your the Bitcoin price predictions and you've done a number of things, but I'm definitely curious. Uh, and we're all curious. How do you see the year ahead? I do think the halving is important because even gold uh, advocates are going to have to sit up and take note that really if, for the first time, the Bitcoin supply growth is going to drop below the long-term average of gold supply growth, meaning uh, below 1%, and it will continue to drop. Uh, whereas if Bitcoin's price, I mean, if uh, gold's price goes up, the miners will be out there finding more supply. So so that's interesting. I do, I do think it's an important moment um, for, uh, for Bitcoin. But I also want to go back to educate here, and I want to thank Alex for being such a good sport. Love your research at uh, at Galaxy, and I know we haven't mentioned uh, Galaxy as much or Invesco Galaxy as much as much, and so my compliance department is going to be very happy. No, I'm kidding. I, I think your research is uh, is wonderful. So thank you so much, Kathy. That means a lot. I appreciate yours too, as well. By the way underlying theme of this whole conversation, Eric brought it up at the beginning, and then Perianne, the Senator, Ophelia, is really around education. I think, Eric, from your point of view, educating on your your group of folks, the 60-40, and why actually Bitcoin should be an allocation in the portfolio, you know, Perry, or Ophelia with your mom in terms of now having a vehicle to have an allocation, and then grassroots Bitcoiners here like Bitcoin Park or PubKey, just YOLOing into a hundred percent allocation, or maybe not a hundred percent, but enough. And uh, I just I, I see this momentum and groundswell of grassroots combined with now a new market participant. I think twenty twenty four is going to be an absolute banger. So I just want to thank everyone. Yasin, my man. I don't know if you had any thoughts uh, you wanted to share as well, my man. Uh, I think you put a beautiful. Uh little bow tie on this entire conversation so we can leave it at that this was an awesome conversation awesome well thank you everybody so much until next time arc believes that the information presented is accurate and was obtained from sources that arc believes to be reliable however arc does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information and such information may be subject to change without notice from arc historical results are not indications of future results Certain of the statements contained in this podcast may be statements of future expectations and other forward-looking statements that are based on ARC's current views and assumptions and involve known and unknown risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results, performance, or events to differ materially from those expressed or implied in such statements.